one God. I mean, um, so I was approached five minutes ago and asked to fill in for Sam, who was supposed to give the talk today. Um, so by God's grace, uh, we have something called Google Drive, which has some uh, previous talks that we can. Uh, so I was looking at this verse. Uh, the Lord says, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. So hopefully some of the things on my Google Drive are good treasures that I can bring out in <laughs> emergencies like this. Um, but actually, this, this topic, I think, uh, goes well with um, the fast that, we're, uh, that, we're I that we, be we began yesterday in uh, commemoration of the Mother of God. Um, I think this verse that is on this first slide from 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, um, really is, is one of those verses that I think applies very beautifully to the mother of God. Um, th uh, the apostle says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Okay. I think this, um, the second part of the verse, the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, is probably one of the very good definitions of the mother of God and her, um, and her, her spirit, her, her heart. Um, and that first part, of course, we can apply not only to what he speaks of here as a sort of external adornment, but it could even apply to things like the adornments that include our titles and our, our honors and our initials and, and the things that we add behind our name and our accomplishments and our deep resumes and all of these things that we sort of accumulate in our life and somehow um, I fall into the, um, the snare that these things sort of define who we are. And what really, really matters, of course, when we stand naked before God on the judgment day is the heart. And, and so that's what we want to speak a little bit about is the place of the heart in, in sort of orthodox spirituality um, by looking at just a few points. The first one is the relationship between the mind and the heart. And, and then we'll look at how Christ addressed the importance of the heart and how we live in the heart. So um, Archimandrite Zechariah Zachru, who's um, one of my very f um, favorite contemporary Orthodox writers and spiritual fathers, um, he wrote, the tragedy of contemporary man is that he lives outside his heart. And we'll look a little bit more at what he means by this, but it's, a, it's again, I think a, f a profound way of sort of addressing the problem of modern man, of, of modernism, you know, is that we, we've sort of, um, transitioned a focus of our life away from the heart and to the mind, to the, to the processing organ of the brain. So it, there's a, there, and this tragedy of, of living outside of our heart, of course, pours over into many things in society. Um, it's not just about um, sort of our private spiritual life. So one of the aspects of the fall, and this is how Archimandrite Zechariah sort of speaks about this separation between the mind and the heart um, is that in the garden, in the, in the, in the original beauty, uh, in the original creation, the beauty of original creation, 
the heart and the mind of man were united. There was no sort of division or tension within man. So the harmony that existed in, in the garden was not just a harmony between man and the animals and a, certainly a harmony between man and God, but a harmony within himself, right? There was no, there was no sort of conflict, inner conflict and division within uh, the human person. And part of the conflict that we feel and that we experienced at um, sort of a spiritual and psychological and emotional level is that we're, we're, we become divided. We become divided. So um, Father uh, John Kreese of Geese, he says in his book on, uh, which is a, this is a very good book, by the way, uh, Archie was talking a little bit about the Desert Fathers. This is a very good book, sort of introducing sort of the themes and the writings of the Desert Fathers. Um, he says, the Coptic monks of the desert knew only a single word and a single struggle for designating both the mind and the heart. We tend to separate the mind from the heart. We like to fill the mind, yet we forget the heart. The two work differently. The mind learns, the heart knows. The mind is educated, the heart believes. The mind is intellectual, speculative, it reads and speaks. The heart is intuitive, mystical, it grows in silence. The two should be held together in the presence of God. It is not that secular education was unacceptable to the desert elders. It is simply that secular education always remains insufficient without ascetic depth. So again, we're going to look more into um, how this sort of um, carries out in our spiritual lives. Um, again, a uh, quote from Archimandrite Zacharias, he says, we have noticed with sadness that nowadays men suffer dreadfully because their mind is fragmented. Imagination, which is only one of the mind's activities, is overindulged and dominates men's lives, leading some to hardness of heart due to pride and others to mental illness. According to the teaching of the gospel and the scriptures, the mind works naturally only when it is united with the heart. Mind and heart are naturally joined together when the fire of contrition is in the heart. So the, the, the work of repentance, right, uh, humility, dialogue with God through um, um, unceasing prayer, uh, reflection and meditation on the word of God, um, the examples of the lives of the saints, the sacraments, all of, all of these help to sort of situate our reality in the heart and, and, and to sort of find that unity between what we use our mind for and, and what is the real sort of um, spiritual, central spiritual organ, which is the, which is the heart. Um, so again, uh, just a couple of more quotes from some of the, the saints. Um, now, Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, a Serbian saint, he says, in the heart is the will, and the heart is love, and the heart is the mind, and the heart is the image of the divine trinity. The heart is the home of the Father, the altar of the Son, and the workshop of the Holy Spirit. And Saint Macarius the Great says, the heart is a small vessel, but all things are contained in it. God is there, the angels are there, and there also is life and the kingdom, the heavenly cities and the treasures of grace. So the heart that is really, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the point of contact and meeting with the spiritual. It's where, it's where God communicates his life to us. It's where, it's where real prayer takes place. It's where the real encounter takes place. So the heart, of course, the center, the, the central sort of organ of the body um, is a symbol um, of the spiritual heart and, and, and that's the spiritual heart which gives life and pumps blood, let's say, to, to all of, of what we do. That's why, again, Father Zechariah says, all we do is dead, only the work we do on our heart remains. You know, so 
if, if we somehow live outside of the heart, if we just live in the world using our brains and our minds to sort of process and, and, and you know, imagine and um, create things from sort of human intelligence, we miss what it means to be human. You know, and, and what really distinguishes us as humans is this ability to, to live in the heart and to encounter God at the place of the heart and to become like him. So the purpose then of Christ's, uh, all of his redemptive works, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, is sort of to open to us the reality of the kingdom. And the kingdom of, of God is not, it is, of course, it is an eschatological reality, meaning it's, the word eschatological just means referring to the eschaton or the age to come. So certainly the kingdom of God has a sort of future fulfillment. But the kingdom of God in the, in the Gospels is a present reality. Christ often speaks in terms of saying, for example, the kingdom of God is within you. But he also says things like that his very presence among the people means the kingdom of God is present. You know? So it's not just the kingdom of God is something in the future, nor is it some sort of um, just some spiritual warm fuzziness that we feel inside. But, this, but the kingdom of God is, is a real encounter with, with, with the Lord who is incarnate and who, who has become one with us and walked among us. His very presence in the sacraments, his very presence through the Holy Spirit, his very presence in prayer um, means that the kingdom of God is a present reality. It's not something that we simply just look for. Yes, we, we say in the creed, we look for what? The resurrection of the dead. This is something that we will experience as a reality after physical death is the resurrection from the dead. But the kingdom of God is already a present reality. The kingdom of God is not just a future um, expectation. And this is really central to what Christ is teaching in the Gospels. Um, he wants to shift this movement away from the external law and the external works of the law and um, sort of you know, um, focusing on, um, you know, all of the, the ritualistic aspects of the law to the reality of, 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 again, the first man, Adam and Eve in the garden, that, that that communion that took place, took place at the level of an interior sort of communion. And, and that, was, that was lost. And so he's trying to restore that. And, and, the, and the very simple proclamation of the good news is that the kingdom of God is, is here. I mean, that's, that's the good news. The good news is, is not simply that, you know, after you die, you know, you go to a beautiful place. But, but, the, but, the, but the good news is that in the coming of Christ, the kingdom has come. And, and the restoration is upon us, right? And that's really, if you think about it, what a beautiful word for us to apply to this division between within us, you know, right? this fragmentation that takes, that's taking place within us. So we all feel it. We all feel, we just sit alone with ourselves for a little while. We feel that conflict within. The fear, the anxiety, the nervousness, the memory, the imagination, the planning, the regrets, right? All of these emotions, all of these thoughts are swirling. And really, if we want to look at this from a non um, sort of, I don't say scientific, it's not, it's not that it's non-scientific, but simply by, by looking at it simply through a scientific lens, right? 
we will give reasons for this disunity as being chemical. We'll say, we'll say that there's a chemical imbalance, right? But is the chemical imbalance, you know, just the cause or the result? You know what I mean? Or, or, or does the chemical imbalance also reflect a spiritual reality that's taking place? And so the, that, 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 that word restoration, to become whole, to become, right? If you, you meet somebody who is a holy person, one thing that strikes you about them is they're not conflicted within themselves. They're at peace with themselves. Okay? That's why, like St. Isaac the Syrian said, make peace with yourselves and heavens will make peace with you. you know? Because that's, that's the work of restoration. That's the work of, um, again, this reuniting the mind and the heart. So um, the kingdom of God is a future reality. It's present within us. But Christ is the, is, the, is the presence of the kingdom. So wherever Christ is present in the sacraments and in, um, in prayer, then the kingdom of God is something that we are already accessing. So it's a life of freedom and, and, and again, restoration, peace, wholeness. Um, again, Christ is the, the, the great sort of um, teacher, one of the one of the important aspects of the incarnation is that Christ is the illuminator, the teacher, the one who enlightens the nations. And so he's the new Moses who gives the new law. And the new law, again, is just a movement from the old law on the outside to the new law on the inside. And that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, and the Beatitudes, of course, being pure, you know, poor in spirit, um, meek, all of these interior qualities. But then he also looks at some aspects of the old law, like murder, anger, adultery, or, um, you know, murder, adultery, um, and he, he roots them back to their proper place, which is the heart, right? What comes out of a man is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they are that which defile the man. So, you know, the, the external law is just, it's just the fruit. As Arthur was talking about the leaves and the fruit, right? The, so the fruit is, is, is perhaps the external, some of the external works, but the, uh, the, the, the root of what's taking place within us is what's going to produce that fruit. So... He is the illuminator, he's the teacher of nations, um, but he's also the conqueror of the human heart, right? No, no person, you know, who sort of claimed that the heart, the human heart was his, was his, um, his booty, if you will, his, like, uh, booty in a war, right? Um, you know, like, this is, this is what he came to conquer, this is what he came to take, possess, was the human heart. And that's really, again, sort of a unique aspect of, of, of the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is that, you know, think about any other great leaders, any other prophetic people, um, true or false prophets, whatever they, but whoever claimed to be sort of uh, an important prophetic person in, in, in humanity, and no one ever really claimed that they were coming to capture the human heart, you know. Um, 
So St. Augustine says, For Christ was not the king of Israel so that he might exact a tax or equip an army with weaponry and visibly vanquish an enemy. He was the king in that he rules minds and that he gives counsel for eternity and that he leads into the kingdom of heaven for those who believe, hope, and love. And perhaps, perhaps one of the, the most beautiful verses of the whole Bible, right? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, you won't find anybody who ever claimed to give humanity rest, to give, to give every individual, whatever their circumstances, to be the source of rest for them. So uh, again, all, all of the, this is to, to remind us of the heart, to remind us of the place of the heart. And, and the heart is the target of God. The, tar- the heart is the target of, of God's work and his, um, and his desire for us. There's this very interesting, uh, long, it's a bit long, but it's worth looking at, Napoleon Bonaparte, who um, we wouldn't really quote among the fathers, but, um, but in this case, he speaks perfectly about, about this mystery of Christ in the human heart. He says, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, m- I myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force? Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, and my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man towards the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may seek in vain at the hands of his friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse, or a man, a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon is accountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to, di- to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This is, what pr- this is which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. And um, then Cardinal uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI, he said, being struck and overcome by the beauty of Christ is a more real, more profound knowledge than mere rational deduction. Of course, we must not underrate the importance of theological reflection, of exact and precise theological thought. It remains absolutely necessary. But to move from here to disdain or to reject the impact produced by the response of the heart in the encounter with beauty as a true form of knowledge would impoverish us and dry up our faith and our theology. We must rediscover this form of knowledge. It is a pressing need of our time. Um, this other Russian saint, Saint Tikhon of Zdansk, um, he ha- I think I've probably said this quote many times before. He, he talks about 
Again, all outwardness without inwardness is nothing. Whatever is not in the heart doesn't exist. Right? Which goes back to what Father uh, um, uh, Archimandrite Zacharias was, was saying. Anything that doesn't take place in the heart is dead. All that we do outside the heart is dead. It's all fake. It's all, it's all a false um, reality. So what is our work? What is our, our work is, of course, to first sort of be aware of that interior life that we're called to live, to, to sort of recognize the place of the heart as the target of God, and therefore to make it our priority, right? To make it our priority by watching over our heart, right? And the fathers and the saints talk about this probably more than, you know, any other topic other than repentance, right? When it's related to repentance, of course, but, but this idea of vigilance, watchfulness, guarding the heart, attentiveness, all of these are trying to say the same, re the same thing, which is a sort of attentiveness to what's happening inside and to what's coming in from the outside, right? The heart of man is like a garden that needs to be protected at all times. We can do all the right things. We can fertilize it. We can plant the good seeds. We can make sure that we water it properly. We can bring in all the experts to make sure that our garden is prepared for success. But if we don't put a hedge around the garden, then everything is destroyed, right? And I think this is what, why, the f why the saints talk so much about, about this topic because they see how easy it is for the devil to snatch all of our good works, right? I mean, we all come to church, we take communion, and we feel like the, 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 the peace and the joy of having, and then the devil says, no problem, I'll just wait for you outside the door, you know? Just enjoy your five minutes of peace, and let me just show you something in the parking lot. Let me just, hey, what, look over there, see how that person's looking at you. Or wait a minute, do, do you remember that person, what they said about you, right? Or all those things that Archie talked about in the sermon today, right? I mean, and then all of a sudden your heart, right, your mind starts and then it descends to your heart and your, start, your heart starts to feel anger, hatred, bitterness, resentment, fear, whatever it might be, right? So, so this, is, this is like sort of the delicacy of spiritual life is that it's, it's not difficult for us to do some of these external things. Yes, we have to set our alarm clocks and wake up on Sunday at a certain time, and maybe we have to fight a little bit against, you know, laziness. But, but the real work, the real difficulty is that constant attentiveness of what's happening in the heart. Because it's, you, you know and I know how fast those thoughts come. I mean, they're unrelenting, right? It's just boom, 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 and they're all negative thoughts, you know. I think I quoted to you before that, that article that said we have the human or the average adult has about 70,000 thoughts per day, right? I'm sure that 69,999 of them are, are pretty negative thoughts, right? So all of these are, are seeking attention for your heart. They're seeking to find a, a dwelling place. And once, the, once they find a dwelling place, they just, you know, they grow. So the heart again, Archimandrite Zechariah says, is the battlefield of our salvation. That's where the warfare is. It's inside. The outside, as many have, 
have, have had everything on the outside stripped of them, right? You, you look at some of these great sort of confessors who were imprisoned, you know, under communism or even in our own church during the Sadat years. Uh, but some of these prisoners in, com in the communist prison camps who spent 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and, and, and what they do to these people to break them down. Um, and they realize that it's all about remaining in the heart. That's the only way you survive. That's the only way that you, 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 you maintain your sanity and your faith and your love. You know, um, I was just talking to somebody recently who was sharing with me about uh, the book by Father George Calciu. Father George Calciu proposed the thing a couple years ago was um, a wonderful Romanian priest who was uh, one of these confessors in the communist prison camps. And he, he's spoken a lot about, you can find some YouTube videos about him and, there, and he's written some, he's given some um, counsel and talks that have been recorded. And, um, and he talks about just how, you know, how difficult, of course, it was to be in isolation, you know, for not just a day or a week, but, you know, a year, two years, five years, and what they do to bring you to sort of your, your, your breaking point. But his another priest of, uh, who was uh, with him, Father Roman Braga, another Romanian priest, um, he has this be beautiful video clip where he says, you know, when you're in that little box, you know, and you can barely breathe, and you're like an animal caged, he says, you have to go somewhere. You can't remain in that box. And he says, and, and so Father Roman, Roman was saying, you know, I was a monk for years, and I thought I knew what it meant to live the spiritual life. But being in that situation, I realized that I didn't really experience the interior life. So he says, when you're in that box, you have to go somewhere. And he says, for many of us, it led us to insanity. But for some of us, we made the journey inside. We made the journey inward. And that journey led to a real sort of freedom and um, deliverance. And so in that experience, they were able to love their, their, their torturers and genuinely not just convince themselves that they had to love them, but they had a real pity and compassion for these people because they saw how much, you know, they were, um, again, like as Archie was talking about today, as they were, the devil had sort of, you know, jumped on them and, and, and taken over. Um, and they converted many of their prison guards by their love. But it, for them, it was a journey of discovering the heart, right? And hopefully, God forbid, any of us has to go through such an experience to, to try to find the heart. We need to try to find it. Um, again, St. Nikolai Velimirovich, he says, Oh, my brother, above all and beyond all else that you keep safe, guard your heart. Let the mountains be overthrown and the seas dried up. Let friends forsake you and riches betray you. Let your body be eaten by worms. Let the world pour on you all the scorn of which it is capable and do not fear. Only guard your heart, guard it, and make it cleave to the Lord. Give it into his keeping. O oh, my brother, the Spirit of God himself can, when he so desires, dwell in the human heart. He not only can, but he wills to do so. Only he waits for you to prepare your heart for him, to make it into a temple. For God, the Holy Spirit, only lives in a temple. As a snake protects its head, so, my son, guard your heart, for the life that comes from the living God enters into it and flows forth from it. We were talking about in the Bible studies, um, some weeks ago about this, you know, one of the themes that you can look at in scripture is sort of this theme of the temple, right? In creation, there's a temple. God is, you know, the, the, the way that the Bible um, describes the creation story 
is that sort of there is this creation of a temple that takes place, right? And when that temple is destroyed by the fall, right, so then God establishes another kind of temple, which is the tabernacle, right? And then the tabernacle then is, is sort of upgraded, right, to the temple of Solomon, and that's destroyed and then rebuilt. But that's why when Christ came, again, he often spoke of himself as being the new temple, that he was the temple, right? But not only Christ is the temple, but then he goes, St. Paul goes beyond and says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right, so it's like full circle back to creation, right? There, God initially, you know, the, the temple was there in the beginning. God dwelt with man, in man. And then, you know, this whole sort of human history brings us back where Christ, the new Adam, restores, this, we can say what, the possibility of being a temple of God again, a real temple. And so St. Paul takes this theme, and he speaks about it a lot in his letters, we are the temple of God. That is a, you know, that means each, each heart is greater than the temple of Solomon. I mean, people go to Israel and they, they are amazed by what's remaining on the, what is it, the, the eastern wall or the western, western wall, is it? Whatever it's called. Um, and, uh, and, and, and historians, they like to make um, drawings and diagrams of what the temple of Solomon looked like and and how impressive it was and what kind of materials were used. But Christ came to say, like, th this is nothing. You know, destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. The new man. Not just resurrection, but I'll create the new, the new temple, which is, which is where God really seeks to dwell. Elder Porfirio says, the soul falls in love with Christ when it gets to know and to follow his commandments. When the soul is in love with Christ, she also loves people, she cannot hate them. The devil cannot enter the soul that is in love with Christ. Like in this hall we are in now, let's say that we are all good. If some bad people showed up at the door at some point and wanted to come in, they wouldn't be able to because the hall is full of all of us. It is the same way with the soul, where all her space is taken up by Christ. The devil cannot, cannot enter and dwell there. However hard he tries because he won't fit, there is no room for him, that is the way we can live the true Christian life. So again, the heart is, think of it as this vessel that if it's full of Christ, if it's full of the saints, if it's full of prayer, if it's full of good meditation, if it's full of good positive thoughts, right, then the enemy just stands outside the door and, and he looks for a space, but he doesn't find space because it's full. But if the heart is empty, then he just brings, as Christ mentioned in the, in the, in the parable about the... Um, the demon bringing, you know, seven other demons worse than himself, right? He, he just brings all his friends in and, and finds residence. Let me just skip this part so I know because we're limited on time. So prayer of the heart, constant prayer such as the Jesus prayer can be a very effective way to sort of um, live in the heart, to discover the heart, you know. Uh, you know, some some teachers will go as far as combining it with breathing. You know, honestly, it's not a bad thing sometimes when you're, when you're sitting alone and quiet to use breathing with the Jesus prayer. Just, just for one simple, not as a technique, not as a te technique of sort of like, uh, like, you know, to get into a trance or something, but as a way of, of meditating that when you breathe in, you breathe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? My Lord Jesus Christ. Son of God, 
and then you breathe out and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? So you sort of just connect this, this image, uh, not really an image, but this thought of Christ entering, sin leaving. Right? The kingdom of God within all that is against the kingdom outside. So that can be a, a, a way, even just when you're in a moment of stress or fear, just do that for a few minutes. Just use your breathing and say, and breathe in Lord Jesus, his name, or even breathe in just Jesus, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. Do that for a few minutes and you'll feel the peace of God. Um, but of course, the unceasing prayer that is talked about in the book, um, The Way of the Pilgrim, and uh, many of the saints have sort of um, spoken about is a good way also for battling thoughts, right? Because we have two options when we have thoughts. We can either replace the thought or we can ignore the thought. I mean, usually the first option is we try to ignore, just let it kind of like we say, in one ear, out the other, right? And so it enters the mind or the heart and if it exits, good. Don't, don't pay it any attention. But if it remains, if it starts to bother you, if it remains sort of as this nagging thought, then you have to replace it. So you replace it with a good thought or a, with a prayer or with a, a reflection or a meditation on the scriptures or thinking about a virtue in one of the saints. Any thought that'll, that'll simply sort of push out that negative thought. Um, and to live in that, and the Jesus pray prayer helps us to live in that constant remembrance of God. To just have that sense, you know, Elder Paisius has this very nice uh, analogy of a child who's at play with his toys and he's so busy with his toys that he's not aware of his father caressing him as he's playing with his toys. And he says that's kind of how we are with God. We're so busy, we're so distracted, we're so immersed in our activities that we're not aware of the presence of God. And so we just need to sort of glance back at him and recognize that he's there caressing us. And the more we glance back at him, the more we have that remembrance of God taking place. The Way of the Pilgrim, the, the author, he says, sometimes I felt, may God give us this experience, sometimes I felt a burning love of Jesus Christ and for the whole creation. Sometimes my tears flowed all on their own in thanksgiving to the Lord who had mercy on me, such a hardened sinner. Sometimes I felt a powerful and deep joy on invoking the name of Jesus Christ and I understood the meaning of his saying, the kingdom of God is within you. All that from just reciting the Jesus prayer. And um, this other um, elder from the Philokalia, St. Hezekius, the priest, he says, the more rain falls on the earth, the softer it makes it. Similarly, Christ's holy name gladdens the earth of our heart the more we call upon it. Right? So uh, just, you know, you can think of a, a leaking faucet dripping on a, on a hard stone. You know, after how many days, weeks, months, years, it will slowly eat away at that hardened stone, right? And so the, the, the name of Jesus, which carries his presence, right, which carries his presence, it works by sort of slowly picking away at the heart, warming the heart, gladdening the heart, softening the heart from all of its hardness. Um, and we arrive at what the fathers called Hezekiah or stillness uh, from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. So let me... I know the kids are coming in. Stillness. This is from an anonymous Orthodox writer. I couldn't find who the author was. He says, stillness, spiritual silence is not simply the absence of talk, of noise, of sound. It is the presence of attention. 
Silence is itself a disclosure of God's presence. God cannot speak his word in the depth of our being unless the silence is there into which the word can be spoken. Stillness requires that we stop running away from ourselves, stop rushing about, filling life with unending streams of activity that serve to fill all the time and space available. So stillness is like, again, that experience of that child that Elder Pais was talking about, who is very much aware of the presence of his father, right? So silence is attentiveness. It's, uh, it's, it's an awareness of, again, the, the knock, right? I, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice, right? Okay, lastly, Abba Pombo said, if you have a heart, you can be saved, right? He loved the simplicity of the Desert Fathers, right? If you have a heart, you can be saved. And if you have a heart, you can be damned too, right? <laughs> it depends. So, but we have, to, we have to take all of the um, examples of the saints who showed us, of course, to how to apply the teachings of Christ so that we begin to learn to live in the heart. And uh, one, one thing that I mentioned in the book, in, in my book, about um, this beautiful expression that some of the, you find it in some of the authors more recently, where they talk about the mind, or St. Theophon the Recluse talks about this, and when he talks about prayer, he says, the mind must descend into the heart. And it's, it seems like a very nice thought, but it's, but it's also like, well, how does the mind descend into the heart? I mean, we can kind of understand the difference between the mind, which processes and thinks, and, you know, and then the heart, which, you know, which encounters, which, but how does the mind sort of descend in the heart? And I think the easiest way that I think about it is that even if we start with the mind, like we read something, we read, we read something in the scriptures, we read something in a book, and we could, it could just remain in the mind as, as, oh, that's interesting to know, that's a fact I didn't know. Or that's something that would be helpful for my sermon next Sunday, right? And it sort of just remains as, as a nice thought. But if that same verse or that same story or that same um, passage that I read causes within me a movement of my heart, like a sense of gratitude, like a sense of contrition, like it makes me think and, and be saddened for my sins, or it inspires me to, to pray, or it inspires me to have a greater sense of hope today, whereas the, day, or the moment before I was sort of lacking in hope. Well, then, then the mind has descended into the heart. Then your heart has been activated. So wherever there is the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, wherever there is faith, hope, and love, wherever there is repentance, contrition, wherever there's desire, greater desire, wherever there's any movement that points us to a real movement towards God, then the heart's activated, right? So we don't need to make it obscure and complicated. Just, you know, when you're reading, try to have that image, you know, or when you're praying, words from a, a prayer book, try to have that image of let the word descend. Don't let it remain there. Let it turn into praise, thanksgiving, contrition, repentance, humility, um, hope, love. Any of, any of those expressions, you know, means that the heart has been activated. And then remain there. Remain in that, remain in that disposition, right? That's why even St. Theophon the Recluse, he says, when you're praying in your prayer book, you're praying the Egbeya, and he says something strikes you. Something that you've read a, mil a, mil a million times before. 
but it, it, it strikes at your heart. You feel the pain of your, your nothingness, or you have a sense of intense gratitude. He says, at that moment, stop. It's better not to finish your prayers and to lose that grace. Enjoy that grace, remain in that grace. Just stay in that moment and pray with that. You know, and that's, I think, a very good piece of advice because sometimes we feel like it's more important for us to finish sort of the, the psalms that we've been given or the, we have 10 minutes, I have to do it, you know. No, if, if, if you find the heart, remain in the heart. Don't leave the heart for, for anything. And glory be to God forever. Oh, sure.